This is JJ Walsh in Hiroshima and unusually and wonderfully also Nasreen Azimi in Hiroshima today. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining today, Nasreen. Thank you for having me. Thank you for inviting me. My name is JJ Walsh. I'm based in Hiroshima, Japan. And this is Seeking Sustainability Live, a talk show focused on travel, culture, artisanship, and all the things that make our lives worth living in terms of trying to balance the needs of people with the needs of the planet and making a profit. Want to learn more about the work that I do? Check out inboundambassador.com and you can also find me on buymeacoffee.com slash JJ Walsh to get some bonus information and insights from the series. So you have had such an interesting background and we've known each other over the years. Um, I shared some of my hike on Miyajima that was thanks to you uh, getting to that beautiful island on such a wonderful day. Um, so I think we, we share that love of nature and being in nature. And that is so informed in so many of the projects that you're so passionate about, which we'll be talking about today. It's wonderful. Thank you. Great. Look forward to it. Yeah. So do you want to talk a little bit about your background? How did you get interested in nature as a part of healing? Maybe that's a big, big topic for a bit down the road, but a lot of your projects are really connected to using nature in a way to add hope and give people connection. I love that. Uh, well, thank you. I think um, one other thing that connects us is, and maybe just about everyone who listens to your podcasts or comes to talk here, is this love of Japan. It's nature, but I think it's also that culture that has informed this nature. And uh, on Miyajima, we felt it so strongly, is that it's uh, this fantastic nature, but the touch of man and that particular Japanese touch of man. So uh, I've been very sensitive to that, but I, I have, I think, been sensitive to nature all my life because in a way I've always been a foreigner since the age of six. I've been a foreigner in different countries and and uh, uh, the nature has been what has helped me feel grounded or or part of these new environments. I was born in Iran uh, in 1959. So I think I was born at the very beginning of a 20 year period of hope in Iran where every indicator uh, was uh, moving in the right direction. Lots of problems, but uh, if one knows the history of Iran and the Middle East in general of the last hundred years, one would realize that uh, we were coming from a very low place of occupation and tyranny and misgovernment and uh, foreign interference. So I was born in 1959, which started a 20 year period of what everyone now calls the golden age. Uh, just people were getting more and more prosperous and things were 
becoming possible that had been impossible for my parents' uh, generation. And so I benefited a lot from that impulse, that vitality. I left, my family left for Pakistan when I was six. So that's when I got exposed to English as this new universe of English. Uh, then back and forth uh, to Iran for a few years and then off to Turkey. And I was very influenced by um, the atmosphere, the nature and the culture of Turkey. Uh, then to Switzerland for s school and university. And then the revolution happened in Iran in 1979. And, and I think that was a turning point uh, for me and maybe a different idea about nature in that uh, uh, as much as we damage ourselves or damage each other, uh, we also damage nature. And sort of that idea of how do you deal with the damage uh, and how do you in a way resurrect from that? And it's maybe timely to have this conversation just after Easter, uh, but I think uh, the work I have done, whether in Afghanistan or with Green Legacy Hiroshima, the survivor trees of Hiroshima, is about not just aspiring to perfection, but how do we, with what we have, how do we get help from nature and help nature uh, to resurrect despite the damage? So, in a nutshell. Fantastic. Um, just to mention, I think you're in the UNITAR office in Hiroshima right now, are you? I am in the UNITAR office yeah. in Hiroshima. Looking as we speak at this uh, splendid, just this masterpiece of the Hiroshima Peace Memorial Park and Kenzo Tange's uh, Memorial Museum and the Dome, which has just been uh, refurbished. Uh, it had its every three years, as you know, it's being refurbished and it just removed this outer gown and it's a splendid day so maybe at the end i can show everyone yeah that would be great i remember visiting you at the office there many years ago to interview you for get hiroshima i believe and uh you were talking about doing conflict resolution talks in that office looking out on the ibam dome has such a power on people in Asia who come over for the conflict resolution seminars who are fighting and they look at the A-bomb dome and they have a stronger reason to work things out. And there is a very real sense of what happens when you go into war and when you can't make resolutions. And I, I, I was left with such a, a powerful feeling that that our position living here in Hiroshima as international people trying to do international things trying to connect with people abroad is it's a really wonderful and powerful place to be it is it is i uh, and as proof i have not left for anywhere else uh, um, my whole career was with UNITAR, has been with UNITAR in different capacities. And uh, in Geneva and New York, I was also doing training programs and I love training programs. These are for professionals. Huh? These are training programs from everything from uh, financial management to world heritage site management to post-conflict reconstruction, urban reconstruction. Uh, but nowhere matched 
what we did in Hiroshima. Uh, there were, of course, you know, a whole set of conditions. Uh, we had a lot of freedom. We had the full support of the prefecture and the citizens of Hiroshima. You know how the how, how much hospitality people can have. We had all the hibakusha, the survivors, always willing to talk with our groups. And I would say it was, um, and I would probably feel exactly the same if I had worked in Nagasaki. Uh, I think these are just too universal um cities there there is no other place and hopefully there never will be uh other cities like hiroshima and nagasaki and uh, the danger of us living here is we forget what unique places are and and the privilege of uh, uh, working with unitar setting up this office you know it was the first it is still the first un office in hiroshima the only un office in hiroshima so uh, when I realized that there was no other, there had never been a UN presence in Hiroshima, I was actually stunned. I, I, in my ignorance, I didn't know before we came, before UNITAR established its office here. And nothing has matched or will ever match that sentiment of uh, gathering people here for any discipline or for any kind of training. You know, we would start a program in the worst years and they have continued of differences between Iran and the United States. And the first day, the delegates would be sitting like this. And within a day or two, as you, every morning, they would have to walk through the Peace Park to come to the office. And something happens because our problems seem so small compared to what has happened in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And I think that was vital. Uh, and I can tell you JJ, that till now there are people who write to me and say that one week in Hiroshima changed their lives. It's it was a, it is and was, and will always be. I hope a transformative experience to spend time in Hiroshima. I found that as well. People often ask me, as an American, how do you feel living in Hiroshima, and it's it's very humbling. And as an American, I'm very careful not to walk against the red lights and to, to be my best person um, and to represent a new type of American. But I think people are so gracious and welcoming to Americans and, and everyone. And it's such a powerful experience connecting to locals and understanding where they came from and their power of resi resilience as as a community. And it's it's so inspiring. Uh, let's talk yeah. about Green Legacy Hiroshima because that was something you did after you kind of left your director role at UNITAR officially and started Green Legacy. And, there, mm -hmm. and UNITAR is over, kind of very connected to Green Legacy as well as the Afghan Fellowship. Is that right? That's absolutely correct. Um, I think that um, uh, well, I had always had this problem with the with the participants of the UNITAR programs in that they would when they left, they would always ask me, well, what can we do for Hiroshima? And you know, I would say something in AIM like, okay, you know, you can start an anti-nuclear campaign, or but what do you really say? What can you give? What can you ask people to do? And and uh, uh, for a long time, I was. Uh, struggling because uh, I knew about the trees, I love the trees, but I sort of couldn't see how they could bear an impact 
And uh, once I decided to step down as director, I had more time. And especially I had more flexibility to work with um, grassroots groups. And uh, I thought, well, you know, my experience is that of an international civil servant. It doesn't help much, but maybe I can put that experience of having worked all over the world uh, to mobilize these people who over the years have grown into positions of responsibility and authority in different places. And what is more common and universal than planting a tree, uh, except that it could be uh, a survivor tree of the first atomic bombing in human history. And so little by little that idea came together. I think they, uh, our idea was really simple in that uh, just rather than deal with the trees or the seeds individually, which is what actually the city, as you know, had been doing. And uh, we stood on the shoulders of many Hibakusha who over the years had been spreading the seeds and saplings of these survivor trees especially the Aogiri campaign with, by Nemuta-san, which as you know, is very quite famous in Hiroshima. Uh, the one thing that hadn't happened was that they weren't taken as an ensemble, as a, as a whole. That's one thing we did. And the other thing we did was to not just give out these seeds, but to request commitment from the receiving side. And that was transformative because uh, it did convey the message, look, you're not just receiving any seed or any sapling, you're receiving uh, the offsprings of survivor trees that have seen an atomic bombing. And uh, that sort of became the rallying call. I have to say that, you know, as uh, most international civil servants, I had many ideas, but complete incapacity to implement them. And I was very fortunate to to go to my dear friend and partner in crime, Tomoko Watanabe, the executive director of the NGO Ant Hiroshima. I think everyone who lives in Hiroshima knows Tomoko. If you want something to happen, you go to Tomoko. And so I went to Tomoko and I said, look, I have this idea, what do you think? Is it doable? And once she signed on, uh, we decided to co-found together Green Legacy Hiroshima. And one by one, of course, the networks she had, I could never have found. I had the networks abroad, but she found the master gardener. She found the botanical garden. She basically found the grassroots people who made it reality. And uh, very quickly, I think within a year, we had a structure. Uh, we committed from the beginning that it would be pro bono because, I mean, you don't sell the seeds of survivor trees of atomic bombing. Um, and everybody stepped in. And I would say that uh, uh, had it not been for UNITAR support, I mean, the website, the office space, uh, I get help with staff time. It has been fantastic. So sustainability woven uh, in the sense that everybody chipped in where they could. And now Green Legacy will mark 10 years this year. And it's just unstoppable because it's such a simple idea, but it's so universal. Everyone gets it. And my dream is, uh, and, I, and I think it's coming together to see Nagasaki as well do the same with its trees. That's great. And hopefully that's going to happen soon. 
so just to give a summary for someone who might not have heard of Green Legacy Hiroshima, uh, there were a lot of trees which everyone assumed were destroyed after the atomic blast of 1945, and they regrew and gave hope to Hiroshima people. And so Green Legacy Hiroshima, like many other organizations, like you mentioned in Hiroshima, collect the seeds from these survivor trees and send the seeds to people who apply from around the world who are trying to rebuild in some way after war or some kind of devastation. Is, is that right? Correct. Actually, the um, it has a lot to do also with Japanese uh, characteristics of record keeping because uh, uh, today, uh, when we started, there were about 170. Now there are about 163 uh, officially nominated uh, A-bomb survivor trees um, registered by the city of Hiroshima. They're kept track of. They have a special plaque. Uh, and thanks to the Hiroshima Botanical Garden, we also started a campaign. Now they have numbers, they're monitored very, very clearly. So it's become uh, quite scientifically precise. Uh, these trees survived. How do we know they survived? Because uh, there were many butts and trunks burnt out uh, segments of different uh, buildings and trees. They were recalled by the survivors as having been there before the atomic bombing, uh, whether through photos, archives, uh, uh, testimonies, and they were not obviously all in the same place. Uh, uh, officially, only trees that are within a two-kilometer radius of the hypocenter are nominated by Hiroshima City as A-bomb survivor trees. And uh, there may be more, but except that we didn't have record of them. And the fact that I would assume in the worst of conditions, people kept track and said, well, I remember uh, this ginkgo, this icho tree was here before. Um, that amazes me even today. We, I know in Iran we wouldn't do it. I know in my adopted Switzerland we won't do it. In the United States we would definitely not keep track. And they did it, which is extraordinary. Now, in Nagasaki that was not done with as much precision, but it's unfair to compare because uh, by the nature of the topography, it was easier to monitor uh, in Hiroshima Whereas in, because of the hilly nature of Nagasaki and the fact that the bomb fell to the side, uh, slightly um, out of the center, it made it difficult to know which trees were there and which trees were not there. Whatever the, the reasoning, it's a miracle that we know for a fact today that these trees survived. Now, not all of them, not all of the 160 are in the same location. As you know, many had to be moved because Hiroshima reconstructed, roads were built, parks were built, uh, uh, but about 30 plus are still in the same location and they bow towards the hypocenter. Uh, because of the effect of the bomb and the heat, the trunk, the side of the trunk that was damaged was weaker 
for a number of years, so the tree is slightly bent. And as Tomoko often mentions, uh, they are bowing towards the hypocenter. So we took these group of trees as an ensemble, as an orchestra, and we mobilize every year. We do seed picking. Uh, our master gardener, Horiguchi-san, takes care of uh, preparing the seeds. Hiroshima Botanical Garden steps in and keeps the seeds and processes all the requirements, for example, physiosanitary testing, getting the permits from the importing countries. It's quite complicated. Uh, and getting the seeds to our partners worldwide. Really happy to see in the picture Kathleen Birkinshaw, who was yes. in the series. Uh, she wrote a beautiful book. She's based in America. Uh, her mother is Japanese, survivor of Hiroshima's atomic bombing. Uh, she wrote a beautiful book called The Last yeah. Cherry Blossom. And uh, she's one of the recipients of the seeds. I, I hadn't put that together. Amazing. Yes. Yes, she is. She is. And, you know, some people like Kath Kathleen is one of them. There are quite a few. Some, uh, we work mostly with uh, universities, botanical gardens or symbolic sites, for example, in Rwanda or, you know, the uh, headquarters of the International Committee of the Red Cross, because we simply cannot send seeds everywhere. We're just very small uh, volunteer group. So that would be out of the question. And anyway, we, we sort of... Uh, like the process of getting to know the partners and knowing that it's for the very long term. And some people like Kathleen, just their passion, you know, they take the idea, they take the seed and they run with it. They do more with it emotionally, intellectually, spiritually, uh, uh, collectively than we would ever be able to do. So it's really, it's been unbelievable. And I have to say, you know, the, uh, last two years ago, we actually started a partnership with a university in Morocco. And that for me was really, I was like, imagine, you know, <laughs> Morocco, okay, Switzerland, US, UK. Um, they actually have a deep responsibility. And they all, most of them have, not Switzerland, but uh, many of these countries actually have nuclear weapons. So it would really make sense. But that... Uh, uh, smaller countries rally and generate passion and interest for what happened in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, I find really great. Yeah, that's fantastic. I have a quote here from the website uh, that you said, through the A-bombed trees, the world can better understand the threats of nuclear weapons and the power, resilience and beauty of nature. I love that. That's true. That's so true. Because they are beautiful trees. And uh, you maybe have seen the ginkgo in Shukane Garden. I mean, the, the, the tree is almost horizontal because, because of the power of the blast. It literally went back and forth. Um, and it is just unbelievable because every year it gives thousands of seeds thousands i mean just one tree what one tree can do and uh, they are beautiful and uh, one time i was work walking with a south sudanese uh, you know how the south sudanese had emerged from all these years of war and they came to hiroshima and they're all the south sudanese are tall this 
tall, lanky young man. And we walked past one of the A-bomb trees on Hewa Odori on the Peace Avenue. And his comment really um, electrified me. He said, oh, I was showing him the damage on the trunk of the tree. And he said, oh, they're also burnt and damaged like us. But look how beautiful they are like us. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> Absolutely. They're, they are beautiful trees. So, so I think one of the treats is uh, usually partners who come to Hiroshima, who make it to Hiroshima and go to see the trees, they expect to see really damaged trees. And they're always surprised just how beautiful every season these trees look. So that's endless, um, and endless. I'm, I'm often surprised, too, by the variety the diversity of trees, right? Like in the Hiroshima Castle grounds, there's a beautiful eucalyptus tree, which yes. is a survivor, uh, which I believe years ago, we took your group's photo next to that Absolutely. amazing tree, right? There's a, a camphor tree in another area, which is absolutely gorgeous. I think around the back of the castle, uh, near, near the school, right? Right. On in Hiroshima Castle, there is the um, holly tree, beautiful holly tree, Christmas tree. There is a willow tree. Uh, there is a ginkgo pine. There is a beautiful cherry tree now transplanted in front of the uh, city hall, uh, which is which was actually in full bloom last week. So uh, they are amazing trees and. Um, the largest grove is uh, on Peace Avenue, uh, opposite Anna Hotel, uh, by the shrine, Shirakami Shrine, uh, the white paper shrine. And uh, in that grove, miraculously, there are about seven or eight species, many, many trees. We don't quite know why so many trees survive there. The master gardener thinks there, was, there must have been some obstacle uh, between the blast and this particular grove. Anyway, it's a magical grove for those of your listeners who come to Hiroshima. I would say that's the first place to go. Let's talk a little bit about the Af Afghan Fellowship Legacy Project, and then we'll talk about um, your Eden Project, which is connected to that. Uh, well, uh, everything is the result of Hiroshima. I would say everything is Hiroshima's fault. <laughs> the, thanks um, to thanks you know, to Hiroshima, right? Thanks to the one of the first projects we started at Unitar uh, when we moved to Hiroshima, when we set up the office in Hiroshima, was an Afghan fellowship. And it was very unique because uh, typically international programs are, okay, we send someone to the country for one week or two weeks, or we bring people for one week and that's it. That's the kind of training. And um, in 2001, right after the fall of the Taliban then, uh, I went to Afghanistan. I had lived uh, or rather visited because I lived in Pakistan when I was a child and with my family, we had visited Afghanistan. So I had this really uh, beautiful recollection. Af Kabul is, is very high altitude. It's almost 2000 meters altitude. So it's very dry. It has these beautiful blue skies. And I recalled 
these avenues, tree-filled avenues in Kabul uh, of my childhood. And uh, uh, I went in 2002, I went back in 2002, and uh, well, Kabul was, well, what 30 years of war could do to a city. I mean, it was dark, gray, all the greenery had been cut for fuel, Uh, there were bullet marks on every corner. I mean, it was really so shockingly sad. And uh, I remember I was uh, in the team with whom, with which we went, uh, was an old hand, an American ambassador who had been in charge of refugees, uh, Jonathan Moore, his long past. But uh, Jonathan was fantastic. He just turned to us and said, I think you'd better drop all your previous plans of how this training is going to be. And let us just go listen to what people need. And it was a fantastic uh, suggestion. You know, I had, I had come with my own baggage. This is how we would do the training program. And that was very effective, dropping the baggage and listening to people. We interviewed, I don't know, about 30 groups, institutions, ministers, uh, activists, young people, old people, internationals. And we came back and said, um, well, Afghanistan doesn't need a one-week training program. They can't do anything with a one-week training program. So uh, let's do this differently. And we set up what became the fellowship, which evolved over the years, a practically nine-month program. and. Uh, Ultimately, they would come to Hiroshima. So, in other words, we did, in the pre-Zoom era, we did a lot of work online, preparing these groups, uh, civil servants, academics, private sector, some of them, activists, some of them, usually a group of 25 to 30 people. And we mobilized a network of resource persons pro bono around the world who, in different disciplines, health, engineering, finance, tax services. And uh, these groups would come to Hiroshima. And this actually lasted beyond me and beyond my two successors. So um, uh, Mihoko Kumamoto, who is the current director of uh, Unitar Hiroshima office, she oversaw the last five years of that program. So it's unheard of in the UN that you can keep a training program going for so long. And and I have to say again, you know, donors, listen, don't do short-term um, projects. The, the Hiroshima Prefecture was the main donor of that program and their wisdom in basically allowing it, the long time span. And these groups uh, kept coming back and growing such that when we closed that program, when UNITAR decided that that was the end of the, the, the cycle in 2019, 2018, end of 2018, there were some 500 people in this network. Now, Afghanistan is not a paradise of peace still today. I think uh, uh, I'm not naive to imagine that. But um, uh, we're also not uh, accepting of despair and we have the we had this treasure of people and we decided to rally uh, and rather than talk about sustainability in an abstract sense which is what 
uh, you usually do if you're an international organization advising um, developing countries. We decided it has to be practical. And uh, what brings together many of the aspects and necessities of devising sustainability projects than a botanical garden. Uh, 33 countries in the world don't even have a single botanical garden. Uh, some other 40 countries in the world have maybe just one or two botanical gardens, even if they cover territory with very different ecosystems, mountains and valleys and uh, rivers and deserts. Uh, and this had been an uh, obsession of mine for a very long time. I, I always uh, sought not just knowledge, but solace and information in botanical gardens. It just was not understandable that countries that needed it the most did not have a botanical garden. You cannot talk about adapting to climate change. You cannot talk about food security. Uh, you cannot talk about collapse of ecosystems if you don't know what your plant life is like, what what are your, uh, what is the trend, how are they being damaged by climate change. That knowledge in countries like Japan or the US or Europe, that knowledge can be spread out in different universities, ministries of agriculture, forestry, botany. But in developing countries, that knowledge is not as easily available. And so, we thought, okay, we have this fantastic network of people in Afghanistan, and there is this glaring need uh, that is not necessarily uh, funding dependent because it actually doesn't take so much money to create a botanical garden. You just need to bring most of that knowledge together in the first place. And uh, last year in January, we launched uh, the botanical garden campaign uh, with this network of uh, people who had uh, come through Hiroshima or been to Hiroshima. And now we're working with three universities. Uh, Kabul University is the obvious one. Uh, Bamiyan University, you know, Bamiyan has this fabulous connection with Japan because of the Silk Road, um, because of the work that uh, Hirayama Iko-sensei has done there. And Paktia, which is the province, Paktia University, because Paktia is the province where Dr. Nakamura Tetsu worked for a very long time. He's a hero there, and they were so committed to finding a way to honor his legacy um, that these three universities have partnered. And uh, we are, as we speak, preparing next week for a design workshop. They have already started establishing their collection policies, their plant policies. Uh, it's really fantastic. So um, I think the, the wise choice we made was to make them university-based. Wars come and go. Unfortunately, we haven't found a way to solve that. But if you look across history, uh, universities remain usually. They're institutions that remain. And, and botanical gardens, since the Middle Ages, actually, when they were created, botanical gardens that are nestled within universities have the best chance of survival. So we're betting on that. Wow. Wonderful. I was listening to one of the seminars that you did for Eden 
Uh, so Eden mm-hmm. is basically seminars to promote what you're trying to do with the Afghan fellowship in terms of getting botanical gardens in Afghanistan. Is that right? Uh, the Eden seminars actually is the latest uh, 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 creation or platform uh it is uh, the uh, the idea is not just to promote uh the botanical garden of afghan project is to promote uh, projects that are a contribution uh, to sustainability but coming from developing countries so Uh, The idea came from Monte Kassim, who is a figure in Japan. He was, I think, one of the first non-Japanese presidents of uh, Ritsumeikan APU in Beppu. And uh, uh, he is now president of Shizankan University and will soon be uh, president of uh, Akita International University. So he's originally Sri Lankan, but he is... uh, both Sri Lankan and so Japanese. And his idea was, how can we provide a platform uh, that people in Japan or around um, not just Asia, but mostly Asia, developing countries uh, can come with ideas, a little bit like what you are doing uh, to promote sustainability-related projects, but uh, allowing mostly university-based graduates who have the ideas, but still not the confidence or the platform to talk about ideas. And so uh, we have uh, presented a number of projects, but the last one, for example, we call them Eden Incubators, uh, were by two young graduates, one Indonesian and one Filipina. Uh, who have these fantastic ideas to make a difference, make more sustainable, environmentally friendly uh, the areas and the disciplines in which they work. So uh, the Eden Seminars is open to many people and I and I was fortunate to be able to present the Botanical Garden campaign through that platform. Wonderful. I was listening to the talk uh, by two botanists maybe, uh, about the mm-hmm. botanical gardens, Peter Raven and Stuart Prim. And uh, okay. they were talking about how important it is to have botanical gardens in Afghanistan as a way to give a gift from Western countries to the Afghanistan Afghan people um, and to help them appreciate their own biodiversity in their own country and to kind of create a sense of pride in where they live. And, uh, you know, especially after so many years of war, um, to have a place where you have local, beautiful plants to enjoy, what that could really be a source of pride. And also it could appeal to tourists and visitors and residents to come in. So in that way, also helping the economy, uh, giving a sense of pride for local people, but also building it into the future. And I thought, what a beautiful way. I'd never thought of botanical gardens as as that kind of asset, you know? Absolutely, absolutely. I think we have been... Um, uh, 
in a in a way, we have come to see botanical gardens in wealthy countries as some sort of an orchid show place, you know, where uh, ladies go to enjoy different taints of uh, pink on <laughs> the orchids, and it's so different. You know, I I actually sent um, a photo of a bag of uh, organic apricots that I bought uh, some months ago. And literally, I mean, it wasn't 50 grams and it cost something like 500 yen, close to $5. And I sent a, a photo of it because it said they were from Afghanistan. And uh, I sent a photo of it to all the chancellors and the teams at the universities in Afghanistan saying, you know, if you knew that the dried fruit of Afghanistan could sell, if it's organic and the quality is guaranteed, that you could sell it for these prices, you would quickly contact the Ministry of Trade and Commerce to support you. Botanical gardens have infinite number of uh, absolutely untapped potential. In Amsterdam, uh, the, they have done a wonderful thing with their botanical garden in Amsterdam is that they have marked uh, the source of all their plant collections, where they came from and what economic benefit it brought. Uh, the Netherlands at the time, mostly, uh, whether it's tea or cotton or ginger or rice or... And just going through that list, you realize how much it has helped the economies of wealthy countries to be able to build a reliable food source. And we have a lot of work to do. But uh, I would say they are just about the fastest route because the knowledge is there. If you talk to our Afghan teens, you know, they know what the endemic plants were. They know their history. It's that it hasn't come together. The history has to come together. The pride in the culture. We are very keen. And Peter Raven, whom you mentioned, Peter Raven is a god of botanical gardens. He's now in his 80s, but he is so respected. He's, he writes textbooks uh, on the subject matter. And Peter Raven, from the beginning, has been reminding us it has to come from within. So the design of the botanical garden has to come from within. And for those of us with interest in architecture, you know, marvels can be done uh, remembering the gardens of the Mughal gardens in the past, remembering the architectural styles in the past. So I'm very hopeful. I'm realistic. It's um, not as easy as Green Legacy, but um, I think just as important. Well, I think we have about 20 minutes left, so I'd love for you to introduce the two books that you've written because I think in many ways you're drawing on parallels from those books, from that research. There's so many connections to Japan. There's so many connections to culture. Uh, I'm really interested in just a short summary and I would love to have you back sometime in the future and talk more in depth about it. But you did a research book on the United States and cultural heritage protection in Japan from 1945 to 1952. And tell me a little bit about that book. 
Um, yes, that was the last the last book. Uh, the I I have loved the idea of the Silk Road for a very very long time. Understandably so. I mean. Uh, the country I was born in, many of the countries I uh, lived in or visited in my childhood were part of that Silk Road. Uh, many of them are losers on the um, contemporary platform today. Uh, history has its ups and downs, but this is not a very great time uh, for the countries of the greater Middle East. Uh, and the western end, I would say, of the of the Silk Road. So, I always had uh, this uh, obsession, and every year I have been going to uh, the Shosoin, uh, the two week uh, presentation of the Shosoin Treasury. For those who don't know it, in Nara, uh, this is probably the oldest. Uh, art collection in the world. It was started in the 8th century. Uh, it, it basically was the collection of beautiful objects uh, of the Silk Road and of Japan, um, and it remained in the imperial household, I think, till uh, roughly before World War II. And uh, the Shusoin collections have many beautiful objects from Iran, from India, from uh, uh, China, from Korea. And I, I kept going back to that. And it started with a question, how was this kept together during the war? Uh, and how come, because I knew that before the war, it was not open to the public. The treasury only opened two weeks or three weeks a year to be cleaned and checked, but it was never open to the, to the public, except one or two during the Edo period, one or two exceptional moments. And I found that uh, a lot of the staff within uh, GHQ had actually been involved uh, in uh, protecting, but also in pushing for the opening of the Shosoin publicly. And from that question, if you if you then remember, you know there was the uh, Iraqi Iraq occupation by the Americans in 2003, and uh, the great looting of the Iraqi national. Uh, that was really a shocking thing to watch because I, I knew that the National Museum of Iraq was the one place where all these different tribes and religions and and cultures of Iraq came together. There was a there was a real pride, and that the strongest army in the world had not been able to protect even a museum uh, was really that image remained in my mind. And little by little, I started putting the story together as to, you know, a lot has been written about the uh, US occupation of Japan, but actually what was happening in the cultural section, uh, other than, you know, that we know there was censorship and all that, but what was happening with the collections and the museums and the policies, and especially uh, the first few years after the end of the war, as you know, were some of the worst years economically. Uh, for two, three years, there was threat of starvation in Japan. I mean, the, the level of 
poverty was huge. A lot of the treasures, cultural treasures of Japan were sold for nothing so that families could survive. And what were the measures that were put in place to protect that stuff? So uh, little by little, this became uh, a story. And uh, I, I think that uh, I did my PhD on the topic and then I decided that uh, I would explore the possibility of a book and uh, uh, it became the book that you have seen. It, it uh, requires a far larger life commitment because there were many stories that emerged of friendships between uh, cultural experts in Japan and the United States of how they transcended uh, the not just the enmities of the war, uh, united by this love of culture. Uh, you know, the, the figures like Langdon Warner. Langdon Warner is the character uh, for Indiana Jones. He was used as the character of Indiana Jones. But Langdon Warner was one of the most refined, uh, charming um, uh, curators of uh, Japanese art. He had a love of tempio art. And uh, the story of his coming uh, He's really pushing his way back to GHQ headquarters, even though he was in his 60s at the end of the war. And the reception he got from the Japanese people and the love with which he went around to make sure that the work of this small team dedicated to protecting Japan's cultural heritage uh, would be done. It was fantastic stories and deserves, a, obviously, uh, an entire movie uh, but what uh, really came across for me is that uh, in this area of uh, cu culture is like nature, universal. And those who love it and want to protect it don't need to have uh, a national um, nameplates. They, they sort of work at the heart. They work for the same cause. So that was a very, very beautiful um, discovery to make. Oh, it, it looks and it sounds so interesting. I haven't read it yet, but I hope to read it and then talk to you more in depth about all the stories you must have in there. It sounds fascinating. Another book you did was The Last Boat to Yokohama. Can you introduce mm. that? Uh, Last Boat to Yokohama was a uh, um, is a book I co-wrote with uh, a French professor at Ritsumeikan in Kyoto, Michel Wallerstein, uh, Wasserman, sorry, Michel Wasserman. And Michel uh, is a music, uh, passionate about music, and especially he's a specialist of uh, many of the European uh, musicians who took refuge in Japan in the 30s. Um, when the violence in Europe and especially Germany was rising. And uh, uh, the reason I went to Michel was very simple. I, uh, I, was, a f I was honored to know Beate Sirota Gordon uh, very well, uh, as maybe you know, but uh, for your listeners, Beate Sirota Gordon uh, was the young woman, one of the very few female members 
of the American uh, occupation, and she was fluent in Japanese because she was uh, raised in Japan. She came to Japan when she was six years old, and uh, she acted also as translator, but she was also an avid feminist. Uh, at a very young age, she had a very clear idea that Japanese women had absolutely no rights at the time. And she was uh, very instrumental in ensuring that the uh, draft of the Constitution included the equal rights article, women's equal rights article. And Beate actually came in this room that I'm speaking from, uh, the very first seminar we did in late 2003 was with Beate Sirota Gordon. So this is really timely. Uh, she was sitting here. She passed away in 2012. Uh, but Beate had a story to tell. The story of her, uh, the role she played um, in the drafting of the Japanese constitution was well known. What she did want to convey is that she felt uh, there was another part of her life which was untold, which is Beate then went back to the United States and for many years, almost 40 years, first at the Japan Foundation and then at the Asia Foundation, she was uh, the pillar of bringing Asian art to audiences in the United States. And, you know, from Kabuki to uh, Indonesian dance, to she really played a very important educational role. And she was a little frustrated that people knew about this few months of her life in Japan and didn't know anything about the 40 years that had come uh, because she always felt that her father, who had been a Jewish pianist who came to Japan, in the late 20s uh, had brought a lot of, he was a genius, he was a very, very famous pianist and a teacher. He brought a lot of the love of Western music to Japan and she felt that she took a lot of the love and understanding of Asian uh, music and art to the West. And so um, I promised her that we would do a book on this father and daughter story. I knew nothing about Western music in Japan, so I found Michel Wasserman, and he immediately, he didn't know much about Beate's role <laughs> as a feminist and as a activist and uh, as an impresario. And so it was a match made in heaven. Um, he wrote the parts about Beate's father. I wrote the parts about Beate's life. Um, we had Beate read the draft, give her last inputs, and she passed away. So it was, uh, you know, the timing of last book to Yokohama uh, was really um, amazing. Definitely want to read that and talk more in depth about all the amazing stories that must be in there. What a fascinating woman. What a fascinating story. She was, you know, when I met Beate, she was she was a grandmother. And uh, but what really stunned me was that um, when she would come to Japan uh, in the 
in the late 90s and early 2000s, she was like a rock star, uh, treated like a rock star by Japanese women, especially Japanese women of post-war generation. She would speak to full houses, a thousand people, two thousand people. It was really impressive. And I realized uh, I didn't know it either. And I realized uh, uh, how much, uh, you know, they usually say you have to be the right person at the right moment. Uh, Beate was criticized mostly by men. She was not a constitutional lawyer. Uh, she was young. She was a woman. Uh, she was not Japanese. Um, she wasn't even really American. She was uh, European. She was born in Austria. And, um, and yet no one could have brought the understanding, the empathy, the linguistic talents, the cultural talents and knowledge to make that happen. And I think had she not pushed through, and the story comes out both in her own book and in our book, had she not been there, uh, equal rights would have happened, obviously. Uh, just as cultural protection of Japan's cultural treasures would have happened. The timing is always important. Uh, in 1945, 1946, that was the time to make these moves because otherwise maybe 10 years would have passed and who knows what damage, whether to cultural heritage or to women's right would have been done uh, in the process. So I think um, she was really a transformative person and uh, I'm so happy we made that book just on time before she left us. Wonderful. We have a comment here from Donna Weeks. Donna, thanks for joining from Periscope. She says, Beate's story is a truly fascinating one. I always ensure my students know about her. That's yes, wonderful. thank you, Donna. And Elizabeth Ann and V have both joined from Facebook. Thank you so much for joining. Um, are you in so many of your projects and so many of your of your books have focused on equality and even in growing up in Iran, uh, moving to Pakistan, uh, doing work with Afghanistan, women's rights, gender equality, discrimination in general for diverse communities, marginalized groups um, must come up over and over in all you is that been a constant theme of your career is that right it has uh, never explicitly always implicitly and 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 i remember uh i remember when you came to interview me all those years ago uh we were talking about power and uh and i think at some point we discussed the idea that uh, it's not necessarily always power we seek, but influence to make a difference. To uh, I really feel blessed. My my father, uh, being from the Middle East, uh, I don't know. I honestly don't know where he got his open mind and his open heart and his respect for women. Uh, but I can tell you that uh, he completely treated uh, my elder brother and uh, myself and my sister in the same way. And I especially, you know, I, I was born in a Muslim family and uh, my father, uh, when we went back to Iran after a stint in Pakistan, where I went to a Catholic school, when we went back to Iran, 
my brother and I attended a Jewish school, the Jewish school of Tehran. And uh, when people would ask my father, but why are you sending your children to a Jewish school? And his response always was, why not? <laughs> and he would, you know, that he would uh, add on that, um, in fact, the Iranian Jews had been there before the Muslims because uh, Iranian Jews had returned uh, to Iran with Cyrus the Great 2,500 years ago. So, so there, that was always his position. I always felt... Uh, that I had been really privileged uh, to have such a father. And uh, maybe this feeling of empathy I have is not necessarily for any group or subgroup or gender. Uh, it's really a question of fairness. And that's why I've loved a UNITAR, because the whole purpose of uh, providing training and research capacities to developing countries is to make it a level playing field. It's so not a level playing field. Uh, when I was in Geneva, you would see, you know, if there was negotiations on cotton uh, at the WTO, at the trade organization, you would have the Canadian or American delegations come with 30, 40 people stay for two, three weeks. And then, you know, the Pakistani delegation, two people would arrive that morning jet lagged, few resources, it's just not fair. And I think um, uh, I would really say I've never really called myself a feminist, uh, but I'm really um, very attached to the idea of universal human rights. Uh, I, I think that is what we should aim for, everyone to have the same right. And History just keeps repeating itself. If you're looking at Myanmar today and you would see the images of Myanmar in the late 80s, you know, it's the same. It's not a trampling of just one group's rights. It's the trampling of human, universal human rights. And that is something we really, that stirs my heart. And it, it reminds me of the talk that we had years ago about gender equality in Japan. And, and you were talking about, uh, like, I think it was around Hillary Clinton was running for president. And I said, do you think there'll be more gender equality if she gets into power as the first female president? And you were saying it's not just one that's going to change. It you can't just change one leader. And that we've seen you know that play out over time in many different situations um yes. representation is very important i remember you saying um i said why should we have equality and you said because we're here <laughs> i love that 51 percent of the population because we're here we deserve to be represented in leadership of all levels i love that i often think back to that conversation that's true. Thank That's you true. so much, Nasreen. That's our hour. Oh, too, wow. too fast. <laughs> You'll have to join again because I seriously am going to read those books, dive into them, and then I really want to talk about all those wonderful stories, especially about Biate. Sounds great. Thank you. And please continue because we, we need this platform, we need this voice, we need your voice. Uh, and we all need to make sustainability reality. I think it's uh, one of the things that always bothered me was that the way we presented it at the UN was 
so abstract and little by little it's coming down to earth and I think we need to do a lot more and voice really helps wonderful well thank you so much and some of the things that I love about all of your projects is how integrated the idea of protection of nature and connection to nature and protection of people and connections between people is so connected in all of your projects and that is sustainability it's not just about the environment it's not just about society it's so interwoven and interconnected we we need to think about it all it's daunting but it's it's important it's doable (laughs) it's doable yeah thank you so much nasreen thank you wonderful see you in miyajima i hope yeah next time next hike Thank you, everybody, for watching today. That was wonderful. Uh, Tomorrow morning, 9.30, we're talking to a woman in the U.S. who has a popular Instagram page, and she is crazy about kimono. So we're talking with Sunshine Kimono tomorrow. Please join us. (laughs) Have a nice night. Thank you so much, Nasreen. Bye. I hope you enjoyed the episode today. If you want to learn more about the work that I do, have a look at inboundambassador.com. You can also sponsor the work that I'm doing on the YouTube channel, Patreon, Buy Me a Coffee, Coffee, or Haps. Have a great day.